Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm just so proud of Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> He becomes he becomes more memeable by the day, and he goes on the cover of GQ in an MS in an MS suit that is that is mid range and fits him just not particularly well in that sort of slightly weird old dad who <laughs> bought a suit thirty years ago and has sort of slightly shriveled and it's but still you know yeah. it's still. He's it's still got good. a few years of wearing exactly. it. Exactly. Um, and I just, I have so many problems with the Labour Party. Obviously, social democracy is like structurally ill-equipped to totally like liberate like the working class and it articulates itself on the level of the nation state and new labor was just a hot mess in so many ways especially on the question of migration but i but. just i just want jeremy to be happy I yes. just, I, I'm so proud of him and the way that he has absolutely no idea what's happened in his life for, for the last two years. He thought he was just going to sort of like fade into like twinkly jam granddad. Socialist obscurity. Yeah, socialist obscurity. And suddenly he's he's the poster boy for um, the, the hopes. Global radical left. The global radical left. And loads of like, like, like young men whose interests include like football, Tisky, Gramsci, and like the sesh. I just I don't understand what two of those words meant, but continue. We'll we'll pick up on which two later. But um are um so like emotionally invested in this incredibly <sighs> incredibly genteel old style social democrat vision of masculinity and I I applaud that. And which is wonderful because like the um the Ian and Hislops of this world have absolutely no idea what's going on yeah. because they don't quite realise that um, even though like he, the man himself, is so sincere that there are sort of 1,500 levels of, of irony that are allowing people to like emotionally engage with the idea that this Jer person is the vanguard. Yeah, do you think Jeremy Corbyn quite knows why? Oh, I think I think he's sort of like politely confused about about the whole thing and just sort of slightly slightly pleased about it. I don't know. I just I'm 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 so proud of him. That's what I want to believe anyway. That he's that he's he might not understand what's happening, but he's really polite to the young people who do it for him. Exactly. Which is why, you know, I just I just want to give him a cuddle and maybe maybe send him a pair of um knitted socks for Christmas. No. Maybe I'll have to Learn to learn to knit beforehand, but I could I could um anyway. I could acquire skills. <laughs> I mean, I'm getting I'm getting off track here.
So, welcome to the Sisterhood Podcast, and today we are talking about various kinds of frozen fruit. Uh, it is the free speech episode, and we're going to be talking about trigger warnings, we're going to be talking about the nature of freedom in speech and debate, and this is obviously a huge topic that gets into some deep, messy philosophical stuff, and people have spent entire careers trying to work out what free speech is, and we're going to do it in half an hour, and um, I'm, I'm feeling confident. Are you feeling confident? I'm, I'm feeling confident. I was born ready. Fantastic. So, in that case, my question to you, Els, is what is free speech? That's, that's outrageous. I can't believe you just <laughs> asked me to... Right, so... I think one of the things is that we need to be very, um, very clear on the fact that a right in its basic form is a legal thing, essentially. Yeah. It's, um, and rights are about protecting the individual from the vicissitudes of potentially corrupt governments. Like that was what yeah. they were set up for. So in basic broad strokes, the right to free speech is the uh, something that enshrines the fact that you can say within certain boundaries what you want and the government can't punish you for that. But because the language of rights has sort of detached itself from its original legal juridical Mm. meaning and taken on this sort of like cultural nebulous formation that's kind of this ever-increasing uncontrollable blob monster that just (laughs) dominates all of all of debate becomes like a meta debate Mm. about what you're allowed to say. Yes this massively confuses things. So what free speech has has become on certain corners of uh, the internet and therefore, you know, um, and thereby certain like now very mainstream political circles is I can say what I want, no matter what the consequences are, um, but those consequences are not allowed to return to me, AKA, I have I have the right to say anything, and you can't complain about it. And if you do complain about it, you're the real fascist. That's what that's what gets me. Exactly. Any kind of criticism is is repurposed as sort of proto fascist, proto or proto Stalinist, or whatever those people um, kind of think is the worst thing. And it becomes, like you've just said, a, a proxy debate about whether it's okay to be racist, basically. That is it okay for me to say this thing? I know it has to be okay for me to say this awful thing because if you criticize me or take my argument apart, you are infringing on my right to free speech and therefore weren't you the real Nazi all along? But but it's it's a genius rhetorical move, right? Mm -hmm. Because what it does is it shifts the debate from the content of the speech onto the form of the speech, onto like the very active speaking and it's so it's so rigorously stupid this is the thing <laughs> yeah that fascinates it's so dunderheaded because the idea that criticizing someone's uh someone's free speech is not in itself free speech it's just it's so so damn myopic obviously yeah. because um and it goes against these sort of you know rarefied liberal values that a lot of you know proponents of free speech pretend yeah. to claim it's like the idea of the idea of debate the idea that things should be able to hold their own in the marketplace of ideas well if that's right we should be allowed to challenge people yeah. without being called like like cucks and snowflakes yeah. or whatever it turns out the free marketplace of ideas is is a monopoly. And exactly. Have, yeah. yeah. Ooh, it's about like <laughs> it's 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 a marketplace like any other. AKA, some people get 
profoundly screwed over yeah. and some people aren't allowed in anyway. Yes, aka not really free at all. Exactly. So what I find interesting as well about the way free speech is used, particularly all around the world, because obviously mm. in the UK, in Europe, we don't have the, this vaunted Second Amendment that they have in the USA. Although some people like to think that we do, which is yes. weird. <laughs> no, it's like we're not Americans. We don't have that. <laughs> Um, we have we don't even have a constitution. You're, you've just been watching too much TV. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I watch Hamilton. It makes me really proud to be an American citizen. No, hang on, wait, wait a second. <laughs> but um, the idea that people who say these reactionary, awful things somehow are themselves—they are the free speech fighters. They're the freedom fighters. It allows them to rephrase and repackage their their boring reactionary racist ideas as somehow you know a great challenge to the status quo you know they're the real rebels they're the real heroes um as long as we don't focus too hard on what it is they've actually said yeah and the fact that what they've actually said is just a sort of lazy repackaging of social realities that have existed for many hundreds of years like this is it's impressive right it's really genuinely impressive that these people have have somehow managed to persuade like a lot of the mainstream press that like racism is some kind of fringe idea rather than a logic underpinning the entire world economic system yeah so oh you you're not allowed to say this stuff anymore apart from on the front page of the daily mail every single day it Who's not allowing you to say this thing? And does not allowing mean just like we've told you that sounds a bit racist? No, th this is my this is my absolute favourite genre of spicy, spicy hot take. Is that when <laughs> people um, take to their nationally syndicated columns to talk about how they're being silenced? Oh I'm God! Like, it's pure ideology. Hook it straight into my central nervous system. <laughs> I love it. plushcare.com/weightloss I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I 
I think it's quite a nice place here to talk about trigger warnings and talk about the way that idea is deliberately, willfully misunderstood to paint at the same time as that that people are trying to paint reactionary ideas as rebellious. They're also trying to trying to rephrase actual resistance and actual radicalism as somehow as reactionary. reactionary. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And and it's no accident that the the real focus when we talk about trigger warnings is on students and all these, you know, these rebellious students because we the bit the image of the the, the rebellious student is quite powerful in culture mm. and particularly since the 60s and a lot of the people forming culture and in public discourse today have would have gone through that radical 60s time and they understand that you know students can be radical they can be left-wing but it's very important that these students today they're not allowed to be radical because they're saying things that um they're saying things that are a bit too progressive uh, for for people in the mainstream politics today, so they must be rephrased as somehow they're the real, they're censorious, they don't want to be taught. Um, and there's this sort of um, generational divide, right? Mm-hmm. Because the the assumption of people who maybe once were radical in the seventies and are now sort of centrist liberals is that um, drifting towards the center is is a condition of of aging and becoming mm. you know more mature for instance yeah. well actually it's just it's just a material condition right yes. you know for for like you know our generation when people um are facing the prospect of never being able to afford a house or kids being on uh, a really terrible wage for the rest of their lives like what reason do they have to drift towards no, the no center reason. absolutely none like what what offer is that they just this is just like a particular demographic shift right? and it's transposed onto um onto like a, a condition of of youth that means that that, that like expressions of, of trigger warnings are just these sort of is Unrarified cry of just yeah, but it's interesting. So I and and I'm going to do a bit of internet history here. So back in the day on the internet, when we had to hand crank the internet (laughs) into what into the internet existing in one room of a house that you had to go to, you had to go to the room where the internet was. Um, Yeah, that's actually uh, uh, Andrew O'Neill says this in his recent shows that the the experience of having to go to a room to get the internet and there was only one box that the internet came in. You probably don't remember that. I'm as really much. sorry. I actually don't remember that. That's <laughs> probably because I was always in that room. That's um, true. But back in the day of the internet, there was a wonderful thing called Live Journal, which you were just a little bit too young for. But on Live Journal, for me, that's really where the trigger warning conversation began. And way before people were talking about trigger warnings in the mainstream press, I was used to trigger warnings being used as just a form, a, a way of, of formatting our posts and a way of saying, look, this post might contain some content that is triggering to people with PTSD. Because it was live journal, we all talked about all our problems all the time. Yeah. And we were all 19 years old and had terrible trauma to write about. Um, but we would still post it. We'd sometimes post it under a cut and just say, look, you may want to read this, you might not. Actually, personally, I sometimes use trigger warnings when I didn't really need to because I would be able to write something like trigger warning this has sex and violence and and all kinds of exciting stuff and you might not want to read it oh oh it's a bit going to be a bit racy and then of course everyone would read it yeah um, that's the other use of trigger warnings but but now people are people are so obsessed with this idea that students in particular are wanting trigger warnings put on everything and I swear to god 
I've read so many more articles and listened to so many more debates about why trigger warnings are bad than I have actually encountered trigger warnings in real life in academic situations. It's it's just such a cooked up fake thing. Yeah, because it cleaves to quite a reactionary propaganda style of of talking about the uh, of like locating the problems mm. with unfreedom in uh, uh, in individuals not adequately signing up to like a certain set of of liberal values of yeah. rarefied discourse, and like, of course, people um, in parliament, and of course, um, like you know, men who went to Eton and then Oxbridge have like a particularly narrow idea of like what acceptable academic and public discourse mm. looks like. It's the it's the bloodless cut and thrust of the debating chamber where no one has anything to lose because they've got nothing really at stake. Yeah, here. no one has skin in the game. They're no talking about abstract ideas, not people's real lives in the academy. Yeah, and the whole point of the cultural conversation about trigger warnings slightly um removed from its perhaps original use as a strictly um uh, as a term that's strictly related to um ptsd is about calling attention to the fact that when we're having these cultural conversations people's people's lives are genuinely at stake and there is um and the trauma that um people are pointing to um is not some you know condition of immaturity it's actually a structural thing like some people have to encounter trauma um in a political sense just every day because of the way that our our society is structured and the idea of um of a trigger warning is to call attention to that absolutely uh, as well as to be able to give people a, you know a little bit of space it's just about saying hey you know take a breath like don't yes. don't not engage with it but just take a moment collect yourself so that you that you can you can engage with it and like the idea that the people who are demanding trigger warnings are able to isolate themselves from these traumas Mm. completely misses the point absolutely because you know the idea that um women are are snowflakes for wanting uh trigger warnings of say scenes of sexual violence is um, does a massive disservice to, to the fact that it, it's actually incredibly it requires an incredible amount of courage I think yes. to go about your life knowing very clearly that everywhere on public transport at home in the office every day you are encountering the possibility of sexual violence absolutely that's not being a snowflake that's being a bloody hero yes absolutely and and this idea as well I, I think it's really important to counter the notion that trigger warnings are about censorship they're not about censorship a trigger warning has never in my experience been about saying we should not read this we should not encounter this it's just about a different way of calling attention to content in a text it's a different way it's a different way of critically engaging with the text it's not saying we won't have this it's saying we will have this and we'll make it more accessible to all kinds of different people and we'll we'll acknowledge and be mindful that people encountering this text or this play or whatever are going to come from different backgrounds. And I, I don't think that this phenomenon is completely illegible to the people complaining about trigger warnings, mm-hmm. right? I think that's precisely what appears so threatening yeah. about it because it's it's bound up 
with an expansion of um, who is allowed mm. into the public discourse. And you can just see this so transparently with this double-handed movement uh, legislatively by the UK government very recently, where you have on one hand a crackdown on things like a trigger warnings in universities and the yeah. uh, people um, using no platform mm -hmm. uh, tactics to stop like really reactionary, potentially dangerous speakers uh, coming into their spaces, whilst they're also rolling out programs like Prevent, yes. which regularly target um, Muslims and students of colour for things like free speech on the Israel-Palestine mm -hmm. question. And so what that is, it's not about um, protecting you know, free speech as a genuinely democratic ideal, it's protecting a certain kind of speech emanating from a certain kind of person, aka speech largely from white people, which is um, you know, coheres with the broad goals and policy priorities of the government. Absolutely. And it's so, it's beyond hypocrisy that in, in the same month that Joe Johnson is, uh, brother of the more famous Johnson, is saying <laughs> that we, will, we won't have these no platforms anymore and we won't have these trigger warnings anymore. Um, in that same month, the, the university's minister is somehow allowing uh, letters to be written to the heads of UK universities asking, you know, which of their which, which of their professors are pro Brexit and not. This is that's that is state intervention in the academy. That is censorship. Um, a trigger warning is not censorship. Exactly, and this is the the idea of of the censoriousness mm. um, is something that. Um, <sighs> needs to be um needs to be integrated into a proper understanding of power mm. because the censor um used to be like an actual actual institution like an actual actual series of of bodies which um which institutionalized state power right yeah um and so the idea that um an individual can uh can be a censor i think is to is to enormously um uh, misunderstand uh, the role of, of censorship historically in protecting power, mm -hmm. which um, is obviously incredibly ironic because people are most regularly accused of being censorious when when using platforms or when using tactics like no platform and using um, uh, tactics that maybe dispute the fact that um, say, you know, Vice should be uh, having a very, very cosy interview with the um, woman from Britain First who, yes. um, who was just retweeted by, by Donald Trump. It's them who are being censorious. Yeah, you know? it, it's, it's, it's the left and, and the liberal pansy students who are being censorious. Not, but, um, but the question then is what power are they trying to protect? What power has become overmighty that they're trying to protect? And it's clearly the fact that they want any power at all for themselves. The, the objection to the discourse of trigger warnings and trauma is clearly about wanting people, if they enter into the public's, public sphere and they enter into the public conversation, um, young people, people of colour, uh, women, queer people, they, they're allowed to come into that conversation as long as they don't change the conversation in any way. You know, as long as the conversation stays 
um, it stays scripted by a certain kind yeah. of person with a certain kind of power. That's the objection. Yeah. Um, I think before we bring this to a close, I'd love us to talk a little bit about trauma and, and actually focus on, on how this language of trauma works. Because it is, I think you've probably noticed in the same way how certain certain parts of the left will use words like making people unsafe i feel unsafe trigger warnings the idea of trauma and how that has become how that weaponizes is an overused word but how how the use of trauma politically has has changed because i think this is something that an older generation doesn't really understand in the same way when we're talking yeah. about pain and about feeling unsafe people aren't always asking for that that pain and that lack of safety to stop they're calling attention to it and this is just a personal theory for me but uh, and I was talking to a couple of, of uh, university professors who are very very concerned about trigger warnings mm-hmm. lately and what I what I said to them was look there is a certain amongst our generation and particularly those of us who are not white straight men from privileged backgrounds it is mu- it's very hard to openly say, you know what, fuck you. You know what, this I, this is this conversation is bullshit. I hate, and actually just stand up and shout back at your tutor. It's much easier to say to that person in a position of power, actually, this is this is hurtful. You have damaged me. You've damaged somebody, somebody else, and this is this is painful. And so sometimes when when people say this makes me feel unsafe what they're actually wanting to say is, is you know, just fuck you. And <laughs> yeah, it is. It, it's the same sentiment, but put in a slightly more almost polite way. Um, but it might make more sense to that older generation if we'd asked you just to transpose all that into the key of fuck you. I think this um, idea of, of um, uh, performing in some senses mm. um, uh, like trauma publicly and by by performing, I don't mean uh, it's it's not true, but it, yeah. it's it's something that is that is on show mm-hmm. uh, almost almost tactically for a political purpose. Yeah. Um, it's about uh, pushing back on the quite sort of like masculine sort of norms of uh, political debate, mm-hmm. right? The um the idea that in order to uh, encounter reality sort of properly and so that you can uh, analyze it well is to be totally unemotional and totally uh, uh totally disinterested yeah. in uh in the outcome of that speech which is obviously it's obviously nonsense if you mm-hmm. if you do have if you do have skin in the game but also um has some continuities with the idea that uh, with a with a long history of uh men censoring women uh from a position of power um, by precisely by pointing out the emotional tenor Absolutely. of of their speech by saying that you're hysterical yeah. you are you're too emotional aka that you haven't really analyzed this situation properly but but missing the point that to be emotional is precisely to analyze the situation properly of course and also it's not that they're not um, it's not that men in positions of power making these arguments are not emotional it's that the women have somehow the wrong emotions it's uh, f- fear or upset uh, those are the wrong emotions but anger is a rational emotion when men have it of course yeah only when men have it yeah. of course and um yes it's um 
There is something though quite passive aggressive about the about the trigger warning and the trauma conversation, as opposed to actively aggressive, which is what's which is what feels like it would it what people really want from student radicals, although of course they don't. And I do think that's something about our generation because we have grown up with such such higher stakes for expressing anger and expressing emotion openly. Mm. We have learned, as people do within abusive situations, that to be passive aggressive rather than to be aggressive. And I don't think that's wrong. That's not censorious. That's something else. Maybe it would be better if people felt freer to just say "fuck you," but I think it's much better that we're talking about it in this way rather than not talking about it at all. The idea of pointing towards, uh, pointing towards the uh, the emotional suffering as a way of um, of unleashing like mm. previously sort of veiled speech, like experiences that were previously sort of um, unconscionable yeah. by by the public writ large. Mm. Um, is to try and flip that dynamic on its head a little to um so that instead of this you know hysterical um irrational woman being being calmed down Mm. by um by sort of you know hundreds of men on the internet what it is is like a very sort of rational person someone who has correctly identified the structures of oppression that are surrounding them being being shouted down by like yeah. thousands and thousands of like completely rabid irrational terrified men like there is a free speech issue absolutely there. it's just not the one you think exactly <laughs> listening to the sisterhood a podcast from new statesman if you'd like to support our work go online and subscribe at newstatesman.com thank you hey it's Paige desorbo from giggly squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to quince I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.